You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 18th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. If Sinn Féin clearly doesn't have the maths for uh, to gain a majority, gain a coalition that would work, there's nothing illegitimate about the other parties trying to find that. After last week's election upset, the Republic of Ireland eyes a grand coalition. Or does it? Or should it? My guests John Everard and James Ball will discuss that and the day's other news, including George Soros taking a swipe at Facebook's leadership, and can dictators really write their wild hubristic purchases off as legitimate expenses? As Holden trundles into history's junkyard, I reflect on the passing of Australia's car. I'm Andrew Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea, Uruguay and Belarus, and James Ball, global editor at the Bureau and author of The System, among other books. We will start in Ireland, where political parties are still trying to figure out how or if the results of last week's election can be assembled into a government. The election was notable for its abrupt ending of the century-old duopoly of the Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael parties. Now very much in the mix are Sinn Féin of unsavoury recent history and capacious skeleton closet. In the interests of keeping Sinn Féin and perhaps certain of their associates out of the Republic's government, a grand coalition of Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael has been suggested, though as we go to air, both Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael appear unenthused by the prospect. Um, James, uh, Sinn Féin might well argue, and they would be right to do so, that they won more votes uh, last weekend than any of the other parties. Is it right to connive to keep them out of government? Uh, in my understanding, and I may have misremembered, they got the most votes, but not quite the most seats. Not quite seats. the most seats. Um, and I would suggest that if you can claim uh, a sort of set to legitimacy, you have it. But essentially, if you can for- if you are the largest party, the general principle is you have the first chance to try and form a government. Um, Ireland is much more sort of formalised sort of coalition talks than we would have under our electoral system mm. here. Um, if Sinn Féin clearly doesn't have the maths for uh, to gain a majority, gain a coalition that would work, there's nothing illegitimate about the other parties trying to find that. The issue sort of comes around grand coalitions because they're always a profoundly sort of unenthusing prospect and they're sort of designed to be that. The sort of hope in a sort of proportional system is that, you know, the parties of the left or of the right to make politics very one-dimensional, which it isn't anymore, uh, between them have enough in common that they can actually get a fairly big shared agenda done. So, you know, you get one party of the left, a couple of smaller satellites, it can actually pursue a green agenda, a liberal agenda, whatever it wants. If you end up in a situation where you have unsavoury parties, as Sinn Féin may still be for many voters uh, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, or as far-right parties or similar Mm. might be elsewhere, if the only way to prevent yourself teaming up with them is to team up with the mainstream opposition, you will end up with a government that doesn't really please many voters, doesn't agree on very much and won't get very much done. And the issue with these grand coalitions is always... Okay, you might be able to hold this together. You might even be able to hold it together for a full term, but you won't get very much done. You won't make people very happy. 
And so what I what's going to happen at the next ballot ballot box to sort of make voters reject that sort of extreme party that meant you couldn't form the coalition you wanted. Well, that is one of the arguments, I guess, against a grand coalition in this instance, that it might just annoy enough people to tee Sinn Féin up for an actual win at the next election. But, but John, is there are there circumstances in which it is justified putting together a grand coalition which could very easily be portrayed and indeed may even be an establishment stitch-up? Well, yes. I mean, remember, Austria was run by just such an arrangement for 20 years or so uh, before the whole thing broke apart, uh, in, you know, catastrophically, as they say, last year. And it, it was not the most inspiring of governments, as, as, as James has said. I mean, it didn't actually excite people, annoyed a lot of people, but it did get a certain amount done, and Austria continued to function. But that's Austria. I think a lot depends on you know, in which country you have got the coalition and what the political culture is. Uh, grand coalitions, including Sinn Féin, of course, bring out a whole host of problems, to which you alluded in your introduction, uh, which don't apply in other countries. Uh, grand coalitions, for example, in Germany uh, that might include uh, the AFD in any shape or form would, I think, uh, to pick up James' phrase, annoy an awful lot more people, and rightly so. Uh, so I, I guess the bland answer is it all depends. Well, James, Germany's actually quite a good example of this because the Sinn Féin and AFD are not comparable in many respects, but they are comparable in that there's a certain amount of queasiness among mainstream parties uh, attached to the idea of dealing with them. Is it again right if a party is popular, as Sinn Féin clearly is now in the Republic of Ireland, for other parties to say on point of principle, we are not going to deal with them? I think the whole point of a political party is to represent a set of principles. And if your principles reject a party with a history of violence, or if they reject a uh, quite far-right party with some very dark racial overtones, that's well and good. That's what your voters backed you to do when they voted you in. So I think it's entirely legitimate for parties to rule out certain other coalition partners. The issue is that does often leave you with the only option of sort of teaming up with your main opposition party to leave that one out. Um, You know, I don't say grand coalitions are always should never happen. It's just, it's always a sign something's got a little wrong, uh, certainly for your own agenda. Um, I mean, as it comes to sort of Germany or to other countries where they're looking to do that, I think the one thing that any party going into that kind of arrangement has to think about is how can it keep its own identity? How can it campaign? How can it sort of make sure that it doesn't just become the target of everything that goes wrong in the country over the next four years as the party it most despises, be that Sinn Féin or the AFD, only gains power and only gains popularity. One of the key things with populism and populists that we tend to see is the second they get anywhere near office or having to do anything, it tends to fall apart quite quickly. <laughs> they don't tend to be very good at running the trains on time, despite the old saying of Mussolini, and certainly not any good at getting the bins collected, as we uh, kept finding out when the BNP uh, won councils in well, Northern England a decade or more this, ago. Th- this is a, a fairly common phenomenon whereby revolutionaries who have come up uh, through a process of making grand gestures and bestriding barricades and so on get confronted, John, with the reality of governing, much of which is extremely t- Um, But in that kind of dynamic that James is discussing there, if you get to a point where there is a mainstream party cooperating with 
let's call it a fringe-slash-extremist party, who usually ends up changing the most? Is there any argument that you can you can turn you can normalise, I guess, a, a populist or extremist party, or or do the extremists tend to end up bringing everybody else down to their level? I think there are examples pointing both ways, aren't there? I mean, in the the red green coalition in Germany, uh, what again twenty years ago, or so now, uh, the Greens did extremely well. Uh, they managed to graft a lot of their agenda onto the future SPD manifesto, and, and green politics is now deeply entrenched uh, in German political culture. So I think they could score that as a, as a major victory. Uh, if you look elsewhere, I, I wouldn't call them an extremist party, but I, I, I don't think that the Lib Dems came out particularly well uh, from their coalition with the Conservative Indeed Party not. in the, the UK. Um, other examples? Uh, of course, the, the natural example to which all our minds turn, comrades, is the Chongdo Front, whose two <laughs> members have been in coalition with the Korean Workers' Party in North Korea for the past 50 years. Um, it's unclear what they stand for any longer, but they're still there. James Ball and John Everard, thank you both for the moment. We'll have more from you shortly. But first, here is Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. France's new health minister, Olivier Véran, has claimed there is a credible risk that the coronavirus outbreak could turn into a pandemic. Varen added that his country's health system is able to cope with all possibilities. Coronavirus has killed almost 2,000 people since the start of the outbreak. The Democratic presidential candidates Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg have clashed ahead of this weekend's Nevada caucus. Sanders says the media mogul is attempting to buy the U.S. election, while Bloomberg says the Vermont senator and his supporters are damaging the Democratic Party. And the boss of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, has pledged $10 billion to help fight climate change. Bezos, who is the world's richest man, says the money can help finance the work of scientists, activists and other environmental groups. He added that the fund would begin distributing money later this year. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with John Everard and James Boyle. Uh, let's take a look at the letters page of the Financial Times adorned this morning by a missive from George Soros, Hungarian-American zillionaire and favourite bogeyman of the foil hat tendency. Soros, it seems, is among those concerned by the corroding of democracy by social media, in particular Facebook, which has become an awesomely efficient delivery system for the demented conspiracy theories which very frequently feature 1G Soros. His letter takes issue with Mark Zuckerberg's arguably ingenuous recent plea for better regulation of big tech and suggests that if Zuckerberg really wanted something done, he'd do it himself. Um, James, I should stress up front that I am not among the shape-shifting lizard people on George Soros's payroll. I am asking... Of my own free will, does he have a point? I should probably disclose TBIJ gets some uh, funding from Open Societies Foundation, which is in turn funded by Soros. So uh, you're, so you're in on it, is what you Thoroughly paid up conspirator. Um, okay, fair enough. But, um, but you know, to quote the philosopher Taylor Swift, uh, there is bad blood here. Um, <laughs> Soros and Zuckerberg have a, a bit of a history, and I'm, I'm actually quite gratified. I think Soros must have read a New Statesman piece of mine because um, Zuckerberg and Sandberg uh, essentially sort of commissioned research into Soros when uh, his sort of foundations, etc., were looking at Facebook's role in misinformation. And some of the messaging that they were putting out on him 
I mean, especially given Zuckerberg is himself Jewish, was getting towards quite problematic territory and seemed to know what they were paying into. They were sort of making a point of identifying groups that were trying to make Facebook accountable as Soros-funded. And given the kind of hard-right attacks on anything that Soros-funded, this was quite a nasty dog-whistle campaign that either... If Zuckerberg and Sandberg were so ignorant as to not know they were dog whistling, then they're incompetent. Or if they knew what they were doing at the helm of a service with two billion users, then they are too maligned to keep their jobs. Uh, so I did the immensely popular thing of uh, calling for both of them to go. And uh, Facebook PR has since, uh, you know, not returned to my calls so often. Um, uh, John, but there is, there are some calls for this. Essentially, these people are at the helm of a sort of of a social network bigger than any country they are utterly unaccountable to shareholders they are utterly unaccountable really to anyone but themselves and they've proven themselves bad custodians so if it takes a billionaire to call out a billionaire at least one's put his head above the parapet good on him um john george soros says uh, as as james is suggesting there that both mark zuckerberg and cheryl sandberg should be removed uh, from facebook should they and if so, how? Who's going to remove them? I, I mean, this is not a democratic institution. You can't vote them out of office. Uh, shareholder revolt? Don't see it coming. Uh, Law, I, I, laws could be passed, of course. Laws could be passed. What kind of laws and who's ever going to pass them? I, I mean, should they be removed? Interesting theoretical point. Don't know. I don't. I mean, flying pigs? No, not going to happen. I mean, it, it, it is a considerable cam of worms. Um, Soros concludes his letter by saying it goes without saying that I support government regulation of social media platforms. Does those strike you as weird, John, how little of that there still is? Uh, well, yes, it does. Uh, also, it seems to be the one thing on which George Soros and Mark Zuckerberg agree. I mean, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's letter is permeated with hand-wringing appeals to government to come in and save the world, to do the regulation that Facebook, of course, being a mere private company, humble, humble, um, really can't do. Uh, which, the, which, but that, just to move that back to what James was saying, that's just nonsense, isn't it? As Soros points out, and again, I wish to reiterate, I'm, I'm agreeing with him on my own time here. Um, if Zuckerberg really wanted to purge Facebook, not merely of political advertising, but just mad nonsense, conspiracy theories, etc., etc., he could do that, couldn't he? So <clears throat> we, we have an interesting sort of double set of situations here. Um, Soros is absolutely right to be sceptical of Zuckerberg's playbook here. It's almost ripped from Yesminster. Sort of stage one is, oh, it would be completely wrong to regulators. We're a new technology. Uh, <laughs> you know, using the old laws for the new world, that would just drag us down and end the innovation that's helping billions of users. Phase two is, well, of course we need regulation. We've always wanted regulation, but we're a global company, so what we need is governments to get together and agree those, because it would make no sense to do it patchwork. And then you've delayed it another 10 years, because how the heck does Russia, China and the US agree a free speech standard? They don't. So once they've then gone to individual ones, well, actually, OK, we think these are sensible proposals, but we think, you know, we need a regulatory regime of compliance and cooperation. We can't have sanctions, you know, that won't work because we're still feeling out a new system gets you another 10 years or so and then you know rinse and repeat sort of 30 years down the line when there's a new technology there anyway you know well why are you regulating us everyone's over on you know Instaface now <laughs> um so you know it, it, soros is right to spot a playbook but zuckerberg has a slight point that there is a problem in doing it himself because 
should he really get to decide the limits of free speech or should that be the job of democratically elected governments? I really hope most of us think it's the latter. Um, Now, Zuckerberg's on slightly shaky ground because he's decided that no one in the world must be allowed to see a woman's nipple, uh, even if it's breastfeeding. So he's arbitrarily decided that standard and then forces it on Facebook in every country, um, but won't enforce it, say, on the limits of uh, political expression or on uh, some things to do with eating disorders or self-harm. So... He's sort of slightly not helped his case by being the arbiter of what's okay in some moral areas. But there is a good point that this is a job for governments who should set laws that Facebook and Twitter and co have to follow for Zuckerberg just to go, okay, I'm going to say no political speech anymore. Starts to get tricky. Yes, and of course the problem is that it's not governments plural, that Facebook being a global company would require a global government to pass that regulation. Uh, We're not anywhere near that point yet, and the chances of effective regulation being passed of the kind that Zuckerberg is calling for are, of course, vanishingly small. I mean, individual countries can do this. Um, You know, Facebook fought this tooth and nail, but Germany made the rules on content denying the Holocaust much stricter. And they fought it and they fought it. And then it turned out access to a German market of 80, 90 million people was worth hiring an extra, reportedly, twenty to 30,000 moderators to check for Holocaust denial content, which they then removed. If individual countries are big enough and worthwhile market enough, they can set laws that limit what's allowed online and the social media companies follow. So just because Zuckerberg doesn't want patchwork laws doesn't mean that we can't do them anyway. Well, let's let's look finally at a country which, which has found a way to regulate social media, which is, of course, North Korea. Uh, with all due caveats that anything that does get reported about the Democratic People's Republic may well have been waived into print under the too-good-to-check clause. Nevertheless, various news agencies are reporting that Kim Jong-un has taken delivery of a dozen horses, hopefully a dozen very sturdy horses, from Russia. Given that the associated customs data suggests that he paid only $75,000 for the lot, it is uncertain whether he intends to ride them or feed them to his pet tigers. Does he have pet tigers? Nobody can prove he doesn't. As far as the world's media is now concerned, Kim Jong-un does have pet... Actually, it wouldn't surprise me. I'd be kind of surprised if he didn't have pet tigers. Um, John, let's stick with the horses. Does this sound plausible? Does this sound like something Kim Jong-un would do? It's readily imaginable that the horses he does ride don't last terribly long. Yes, uh, easily imaginable. Uh, he doesn't need uh, the finest of the fine horses. He just needs a good, sturdy white horse to go and prance around on, on the top of sacred mountains in full view of lots of television cameras. And how long the horse lasts after that, or what happens to it, is probably not at the top of Kim Jong-un's worry list. Uh, so, yes, uh, it comes from customs data, uh, which uh, there's no reason to think it's falsified. He probably did buy these horses. See, John, you have the advantage uh, when discussing this of having lived in Pyongyang for, for a considerable period. All this stuff that Kim Jong-un does, does strike most of the outside world as quite mad. It's not just the prancing around on horses, gazing solemnly into the middle distance. It's, it's all the other stuff. 
Does it play with North Koreans? Do people in North Korea generally absorb this at face value, or is there any part of them that thinks this is all kind of silly, but I guess he's he's doing a job? It depends on the North Korean. I mean, they're, mm. this, they're not a monolithic hall. They're, they're all individuals. They all have different responses to this. But in general, across North Korean society, uh, there's a much greater readiness to accept political symbolism than there is in a Western society. And everybody understands that massive statues are, are is what leaders do. It's what the kings of Korea used to do before the Japanese came. White Horse, of course, a visual quote that is usually missed by Western observers. This is Hirohito. Hirohito of Japan always photographed astride a white horse. And that is the quote that Kim Jong-un is using in this case. And all Koreans will understand that. Uh, James, do you have any particular favourite examples of tyrannical hubris? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's hubris or what, but uh, I was just thinking of the Terracotta Army because it's just sort of this absolutely that sensational thing. I mean, you know, of course, well, it's just um, I, I, I visited it once and it's this sort of odd thing where you see these sort of row after row of soldiers, which, of course, we know were painted. But apparently what we've uncovered is just a tiny part of what was this sort of grand sort of something like 30 kilometre by 30 kilometre mausoleum, which is about the size of central London. Um, you know, zones one, two, three-ish. Um, and then a football pitch-sized tomb in the middle that no one's reopened. And then, of course, these rows after row of soldiers that we found that they think probably tens of thousands of people died building. I mean, for your grave. I mean, that is, <laughs> that is as ego goes. I mean, you know, just no one tell Donald Trump about it. Oh God! Now that is that, that, <laughs> that, that is a thought. I, I would assume that he has already started work on designs for a Gordy mausoleum. Except, of course, he doubtless imagines that he literally will never die. I mean, he will get a presidential library to be buried in. So just think what that's going to look like. James Ball and John Everard, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, you will hear me waxing lyrical about a make of car that will not be waxed again whatever that even means. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, it's been holding out for a while. I did not that write that line. That was Augustin Machilari, who has produced this programme. Address all complaints to him, although our email addresses are very similar, so I'll probably end up getting them. I'm talking about a well-known, the best-known Australian automobile. It has gone under, and part of my heart, again, I suspect Augustin is overselling it here a bit, has gone with it. Australia, what's your favourite sport? Football. Snack. Pies. Animal. Kangaroo. And what's your favourite car, Australia? Holden. Let me see that. Football. Few garages outside Australia ever housed a Holden car. In Australia, it is difficult to overstate the bewilderment that this week's formal demise of the Holden car will occasion. We love football, meat, pies, kangaroos and Holden cars. Football, meat, pies, Holden's long-standing American partner, General Motors, has announced that the mark will be wound up by 2021. Holden is no ordinary brand. The Holden FX of 1948 was the first properly Australian-built car. Holden sold itself subsequently as the automotive embodiment of the nation. A 1970s Holden jingle confidently boiled the fundamentals of Australian iconography down to football, meat pies, kangaroos and Holden cars. When a 1980s sitcom satirised Australian suburbia, it was named after the then-ubiquitous Holden sedan, Kingswood Country. 
Yeah, sure, Dad. See ya. Where are you going? I'm going up to a rainforest for a demonstration. You're not taking the Kingswood? I just glad-wrapped the area. <laughs> Holden's eternal contest with the local iteration of Ford was a genuine schism which descended through families. The rivalry still underpins Australia's premier motorsport competition, the Supercars Championship. That rift notwithstanding, it is hard to imagine that there is a single Australian alive who has not ridden in a Tirana, Commodore, Monaro or Kingswood and who will not be recalling it wistfully right now. Makes sense to me! That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Madeleine Pollard. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Louis Allen. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>